0: I'm so thankful for the chance to speak with you all this morning. Uh, I say this often when I speak here, but um, our church was a huge part in our decision to move to this part of the world, and I'm so thankful to be part of this fellowship. And uh, I'm enough of an extrovert that, of course, I wish that we could all be together, and you know how much I've been missing that, but but even at a distance, good things are happening in our life together, and it's uh, exciting to see how many people are touched by the ministry of our church at a distance. So I've got mixed feelings about this whole experience. I'll share some of them with you today, but I feel especially privileged uh, to share with you today, which was of course the week that we were expecting to be back together, but instead are settling into an indeterminate time, uh, which could be a long time, and that may feel uh, hopeless to us. I want to talk to you this morning about Joseph and um, I'm thankful for the verses that were read from the 105th Psalm. In those verses we get just a little snapshot of Joseph's story. Um, It's when he was in prison and then when he was brought out. And of course that little snapshot of Joseph's life was, was part of a much larger story. When Joseph is a boy, he is really grandiose. He has dreams, big dreams. He has dreams that each of his brothers Uh, have a sheaf of grain and that his sheaf of grain suddenly stands upright and each of his brother's sheaves of grain come and bow down to his sheaf. And of course that bothers his brothers. They presume he should know his place a little better as the 11th of 12. uh, And they get angry at him for his arrogance. As if that were not enough of a dream, he has another dream where it's not only the brothers bowing to him, but the sun and moon and eleven stars come and bow to him. And here we don't even have the pretense of symbolism. We just hear the sun, moon, and the stars were bowing to me, which is quite a, uh, you know, another grand thing to say, and, and, and his father is offended at this and says, you know, seriously, your mom and I and your eleven brothers will all bow to you? And I always feel like he kind of misses the point here. I mean, yes, it's offensive that his family will come and bow down to him, but he's envisioning the heavenly bodies. Bowing down to him. This is a dream. If I had had a dream like this, I would have known to keep this to myself. <laughs> People might not want to hear about my delusions of grandeur, but Joseph doesn't seem to know to keep this to himself. And this is part of the picture we have of Joseph at the beginning of his life. He is talented, he is charismatic, he is self centered, he is clueless, he is extraordinarily blessed. We know this because his brothers get tired of his act and they think of killing him, but instead they only pretend to kill him and they sell him into slavery. But things work out for Joseph. And and he winds up with an Egyptian, a man named Potiphar, who sees his talent, sees his blessing. He sees that he is successful at everything he tries, and so he puts him in charge of everything in his household. And we read that with Joseph around, with Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything. Just the food that he ate. That's all Potiphar had to think about. And everything else, Joseph took care of. But then there's a moment when things change for Joseph. He is a handsome young man, and his master's wife notices this, and she seduces him. And he resists her, and so she's angry. And she frames him. And Joseph is thrown into prison. And that's what I came to talk to you this morning about, prison. Because there have been so many times in the last few months where I felt like I'm in prison. And part of this is a geographical reality, a physical reality. From March 13th, Becca, on March 13th, I brought coffee creamer to your house. And that was the last time I left Houghton until almost Mother's Day. Between March 13th and almost Mother's Day, I did not leave Houghton. This was more than eight weeks of my life. And the whole reality of my life was the dump to the south and the track to the north. And I would drive my trash down to the dump and I would look out beyond and I would almost see dragons be here written, you know, just think... What could be out there? And I'd go to Fillmore to the north, and I'd think, what exotic garden of delights is up there? I would love to go to Fillmore again. That feeling of, of my life is lived in this little place, a physical, geographical reality. That was part of prison, but part of it's more than that, you know. It was an, an emotional reality, too. I love rooms full of people. I wish this room was full of people right now. I pray and look forward to the day it can be full of people again. I pray this time has taught us what a privilege it is to be in a room full of people worshiping together. I know rooms, and I know how to work a room. (laughs) I don't know how to work a Zoom room. This might sound crazy to some of you, but let me try it. In meetings, I am constantly taking the temperature of a room. I am sensing where the anxiety is. I am seeing who is boldly speaking. I am seeing who is holding back. I'm I'm listening for who who is talking more than he or she should and who is talking less than he or she should. And for me, it's like an equation in my head. I'm thinking through all of these things and and trying to think of different variables to solve the problem? How how do we move this meeting forward in a way that that does something and really helps us move forward in a healthy way together? Like I say, I realize that might sound intuitive to some of you and insane to others, but, but I really do look at meetings like this and say, what can I do in this place at this time given this variable and this variable and this variable and this person and this person and this person? For me, that is trying to work a room in Jesus' name. I care so much about things like that, and I know it sounds strange to the the normal people who are listening who are not like me, but, but in some ways, understanding a room has been my life. I've dedicated so much of my life to the task of interpersonal communication, to helping rooms cohere. And I love to speak the gospel to anybody, but I love to proclaim the gospel to rooms full of people, and this time... In my life has taken away my rooms and and the place that I thrive. And of course the terrifying question is, what if this is the way things always are? What if the rooms never come back? What if we are always in this place that is not really a place? What if for the rest of my life I'm only incarnate to my family and my bubble But to the rest of you, I'm I'm flickering pixels, something else to turn your eyes and attention to once in a while between sips of coffee and the scroll of the phone. Prison is not just a geographical or physical reality. It's, It's an emotional reality. Let's push deeper. It's a spiritual reality, too. Because when you like rooms like I do and they are taken away from you, you get pushed into that deeper question, who am I without the room? Who am I when I cannot do that crazy interpersonal math I love to do? Who am I when I cannot preach the gospel? This is the first time in six months I've stood up to preach. Who am I when I cannot do everything I'm trained to do? Who am I when I cannot make eye contact with those the world will not look at? Who am I when, I when I cannot get a sense of what the Spirit knows must be said and say it? Who am I when I can't ask the question that other people won't ask? And worse, what if all that stuff I thought was so important that I was doing when we were all together didn't make me as indispensable as I hoped? Somewhere out there, your life has gone on with less of me, and you know what? You've been okay. You've made do without me. That's the deepest reality of prison, the spiritual reality, the realization that life goes on and the world goes on without you. And here Joseph sits, and here I sit, the world going on without us, (laughs) the world learning to adjust, the world even forgetting who we are. That's the deepest fear. (laughs) That's the deepest fear, isn't it? That we will rot away in our prisons and others will make a new reality without us. Joseph feels it in his prison. I feel it without my rooms to work. And no doubt you feel it too. You think, I'm a a professor. I've taken so much pride in my teaching. And and what if this is the new normal and I'm left behind? I'm a choral singer. What if people just stop singing choral music? I love baseball. What if I can never go back to a baseball game? There is so much fear. And it's all rooted in this deep, primal, spiritual fear that we will be forgotten and that, in the end, we are alone. Now, here's the thing. I'd love to tell you that we have nothing to be afraid of, that that our fears are baseless. And in some ways, that's true. It's very likely that we will be back to all of these things sooner rather than later. Experts remain optimistic we'll have a vaccine. So many smart people are working so hard on this. And I expect we will hit some kind of stasis soon. We'll get out of prison. But but I don't want the lesson to be lost. Because on the other hand, right, that fear that we're alone, that terror that the world will move on without us, in some ways that fear is absolutely true. In a way, that's the most true thing of all. It's the most honest thing of all. Each of us here today and each of us watching will be nothing but a memory, 100, 150 years from now, 200 years from now, maybe one or two of us will be remembered by anyone in the world. And the reality is that at the end of our lives, if we are fortunate, we will gather around our friends and our family, and we will say goodbye to them, and then they will say to us, it's okay, you can go. And we will go alone. You got to cross the lonesome valley by yourself. And that terrifies us, the aloneness of it. But that's the reality. In the end, we are alone with God. Well, that's what what makes prison so terrifying but so important because in prison, Joseph is able to practice being alone with God. He has no brothers to subtly manipulate. He has no father and mother to keep under his thumb. He has no master to impress. He has no ladder to climb. It's Joseph and God rehearsing the eternal drama that is most true, that solitary relationship that each of us has with God on our own. Prison is revealed to be a crushing grace because it enables us to practice being alone. For me, that will always be the enduring legacy of this pandemic, (laughs) that crushing feeling of being alone. So much of my life has been lived with others. God has called me to be a bridge builder, but I, but I I know how easily my bridge building becomes not only a way to honor God, but awake to take care of me, to earn my keep, to reassure myself and others that my life has meaning and value. I'm always chastened by how easy it is for the work of a pastor to move from facilitating a relationship with God to facilitating a relationship with me. I- I'm trying hard to learn how to share myself appropriately so that I'm a helpful bridge to to God instead of building my own brand. But it's hard to do in America because that's what they say successful pastors have to do in America, is build their brand. And like Joseph, this pandemic has mortified and crucified my ability to do what I do, to build bridges. Who do you build bridges to when you're alone? It has made me feel completely helpless, robbed of the tools I use to please God and to take care of me. It has forced me into this place where my achievements are meaningless because I cannot achieve. I'm forced into this primal place where I have to know God for myself. In in a way, prison has moved me to this place where I can no longer keep alive a false image of myself as a good person. That's that's what can happen when I'm working the room and being the person God's made me to be, is I can subtly teach myself over and over, you're really one of the good ones. You're really one of the good ones. But in prison, I see some stuff about me that is not so flattering. And I could tell some of you, some of it (laughs) to you this morning, but some of it would get pretty uncomfortable pretty quick. Because in prison I see that my anger has not yet been mortified like I thought it was. That it lurks below the surface. In prison, I see my petty idolatries. In prison, I see my resentment of others' imperfections. And then as soon as they get closer to perfect, I resent the things they do well because they do them better than me. All of these are hidden as long as I can do my job. But when that's gone, I see myself for who I am. Prison did a number on Joseph. In some ways, Joseph comes out the same way he went in, and that's kind of the way the psalm tells the story, that he was a man of integrity, he went in, he persisted, he was brought out, and and there's a way to tell the story that way. But Joseph is a really different person when he comes out in many ways. I mean, think about how he was before, the stories I've told you about his dreams, the way that once he was brought into Egypt, he did a great job, but all he really did was enrich an Egyptian commander. There was no real purpose to what he was doing. He's just taking care of himself, aggrandizing himself. The brothers I- intended it for evil when they sold Joseph into slavery, but of course the line is, God intended it for good. <laughs> because Joseph winds up in a spot where he can be helpful, but, but he's, before prison, he's not yet the kind of person who might be willing to be helpful. Because after he's released, and things get better for Joseph, and he rises again to become the second in command in Egypt. It's then that Joseph's brothers are in need of food, and they come to see him in Egypt. And we might expect, again, the old Joseph to say, what are you doing here? (laughs) Looks like that dream about the sheaves has come true, hasn't it? But instead he says something else. God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down, he says, bring my father down. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. I will provide for you there. Do you see? Somehow in prison, you will bow down to me became I will provide for you. In prison, Joseph has to come face to face with the reality of his limitations. The world forgot about Joseph. We know this, just like we have felt the world has forgotten about us. But one more thing happened in that prison cell from Genesis 39. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Prison is the place we come face to face with the realities that we run away from, our terrifying existential aloneness, the question of who we are when we are alone. But prison is not only a place where this is put to death, it's the place we discover a new and different life. Prison is a place of blessing. It is the place where the chatter is silenced long enough to discover God's love for us when we're alone. See, that's the truth, right? That when we are alone... When we are unable to care for ourselves, when we are unable to achieve great things for God, we are loved. We say this all the time, and yet it's hard to let it sink in. Joseph is discovering a love that is deeper and more profound and more real than any of the human loves he has experienced. Joseph is finding out that very uh, that way deep down there at the bottom of our human existence down at that place where we are naked and vulnerable before God that there there we are not alone but we are loved with a steadfast love, a love that will not give way, a love that fashioned a man and a woman from the dust of the earth long before Joseph came along, and a love that redeemed the world when he came as a man long after Joseph was here. Joseph is discovering that love for himself in prison. And when he comes out of the prison, part of him is the same. His gifts are very similar. But he is a changed person. You will bow down to me has become I will provide for you. I want to testify today to God's steadfast love in these last few months. Like I say, I've been so grieved by the loss of my usual ways of giving and receiving God's love. I, I have been so grieved by the way that my intense absence from most of you has made me feel so very alone. But at the bottom, at the very root, I say this with every bit of my heart. God is steadfast love. Even when I have had to learn a different language for speaking to him and listening to him than I wanted to learn, God is steadfast love. That's the gift of this time for me, and I want to share it with you. I I wonder if this could lead all of us together on a journey kind of like Joseph's. You You know, whenever this ends, whatever things look like when this ends, they will not go back to what they were before. And that grieves me, but, but it also gives me hope. Because, you know, as much as I love this place, the Houghton community was not a perfect place. It was not the kingdom of God on earth. I remember once I was in, in grad school, and I met a fellow student who had gone to Houghton some years before me. I hadn't, hadn't known him here. And, uh, and he, he said to me, Something like, dear old Houghton, right? And he came up to me and kind of looked conspiratorially at me, and I wasn't sure what he meant, you know, but it became quickly obvious that he had had a very bad experience at Houghton. And he expected that I also would have a bad experience, because how else would I wind up in the same place that he had? And so uh, he started to share with me all the miserable things that had happened to him, and, and he didn't know that I'd had a good experience. And I tried to listen well and also not throw my alma mater under the bus. It was kind of hard, hard to do, but... How can one place do that? Right? How could one place be so good for me and so difficult for others? I puzzled it through because his story is not the only one like that, and I began to think, boy, when people think inconvenient things, this can be a hard place to be. I'm not, just please, hear me, I'm not blaming the community and saying, you know, anytime anyone thinks any, something inconvenient, you throw them out, you're mean to them. That's not what I'm saying, right? Just because... Just because this person didn't feel love doesn't mean that people weren't trying to love him here. But I realized, right, that I, in my life, have in general believed and done most of the things Houghton has taught me to do. Broadly speaking, the church, the college, my experience here has been largely good, but I've been generally the kind of person who thinks, yeah, this is the way things ought to be. And in those times when I have done or thought inconvenient things, uh, I have enough history here and enough standing and enough family connections that, that you forgive me. Right? Some of you knew my grandmother, and you know that she thought inconvenient things too. And so you're like, okay, he's crazy, but he's like that kind of crazy. So he's still one of us. Right? He's a safe crazy. But you know, other people don't get that kind of treatment. Right? And so sometimes when people begin to push boundaries, there's a way that communities begin to push back. Sometimes that's blatant, right? There are stories of people getting kicked out of churches. But there's often a real subtle, quiet way that works. It's easier to freeze people out than kick them out. (laughs) I mean, kicking them out is quicker. (laughs) But freezing them out is easier to rationalize. Because if you freeze people out, they'll still be gone. But you can pat yourself on the back that you're not like one of those terrible churches that kicks people out. And so sometimes groups of people, and we're no exception, find ways to freeze people out. We ignore the issues they care about, often with the rationale that these issues are are too contentious and, and we don't want to be divisive. So the gay kid might come to Houghton and hear, oh, it's a burning issue of utmost importance that we have religious freedom, liberty to practice our faith but they might not feel like it's a burning issue of utmost importance that we really learn, how do I square my theology and loving another person in a way that they can receive as love? Why might they feel that way? Well, because it's hard for us to talk about. It's hard for us to talk about what exactly it means to love gay people well. We might end up in an argument. There are only 15 of us in this room. If I were to have that talk now, I'm sure we'd have 15 different opinions. That's a hard conversation to have." And so the kid thinks, well, these people would rather preserve the peace between them than talk about this thing that's really important to me. The boy in the Black Lives Matter t-shirt might hear a lot about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but he might conclude, "Uh, the issues facing me in the inner city, they're not as important to these folks. They won't talk about them because it will hurt them to talk about it. It'll be too hard for them. And so they're willing to sacrifice my presence for the sake of having peace together. Do you see, in all these things, it's very easy for us to be like the old Joseph. (laughs) that Joseph that is concerned primarily with self-preservation. How can I ensure that I stay strong and secure? And I don't want to go back to that old Houghton community. And this pandemic gives us a chance to rethink what it might mean to be the Houghton community in a new and different way, using the the raw materials of what's come before, but but making it sturdier. And as we do that, I just want to suggest one thing to help us. Protect the prison. It's a really weird thing to say, I know. Protect the prison. But, But... prison is a place of transformation, right? That's what I've said. Prison is a place where I discover what's really going on inside me, and I discover God's deep love for me, and I come out different. Communities are at their very best when they protect that prison place. We're at our best when we realize that everybody needs that solitude, if you doubt prison has changed me, consider what the, what the meaning of this is. Michael Jordan, lead extrovert, lead community guy, is preaching a sermon about solitude. It's changed me. We're at our best when we preserve that time and space for people to be alone. When I'm in that place where I'm alone with God, when I discover his steadfast love for me, then all of my interactions with the community take on a different flavor. See, if I, if I don't know that steadfast love for myself, then all of my interactions with you have to be about earning that steadfast love. So I might preach for your approval. I might preach in a way that gives the appearance of depth, <laughs> but in reality is simply flattering you so that you will give me the love and approval I crave. Or I could go the other direction, and I could preach angry. Angry and say to myself, they're going to push me away, I'm going to push them away first. Then I can remind myself that at least God loves me if these people don't. But when I know that love of God, when I have been to that prison transformation place, then I don't have to do that. (laughs) I can be, then, at your service to humbly listen for the truth, to speak the truth as best I can, to trust God with our relationships as they go forward together. The Houghton community is better when we are protecting that prison place for ourselves. And you know, it's also better when we protect that prison place for others. That's also hard to do in a community because part of me doesn't want you to have a prison place. Because as a preacher, I like to frame the relationship with God for you. To share with you how I see it and to give you a reliable sense of who God is and how he wants to connect with you. And and for me to tell you to go to the quiet place, to go to the prison place, for you to encounter God on your own might mean something unpredictable could happen. I mean, God might tell you that something I said was wrong. (laughs) That's super inconvenient to me. Or, Or you might hear God telling you something and you could be wrong. I mean, you really could just pretend you're hearing the voice of God and instead hear something just reinforcing your own biases. It's so tempting because that's so hard. It's so tempting for me to just frame it and say, hey, believe it my way. Relate to God my way. You'll be fine. But in the end, you know, you know what will happen? You'll only go as deep as I've gone. We're at our best when we're preserving that place for each other, giving each other time and space to hear from God, when we create lives with margin, when we create and sustain a church culture which doesn't shame people into volunteering but preserves the time they need to encounter God. It means honoring the Sabbath in our own lives, and allowing others to practice the Sabbath. And it means treating disagreements well. (laughs) Nothing is worse than a church that that can't tolerate conversation and disagreement, where every conversation becomes feeling out how the other person is, what camp are they in, and how can I get them into my camp or get them out of my life? You know, if we we can't learn from each other, we're going to learn from someone who doesn't have our best interest at heart, And so if I want to be able to come to this conversation with you ready to learn, ready to speak, ready to listen, I've got to be in that prison place. And I've got to give you room to be in that prison place. My favorite writer, Henry Nouwen, says that when communities are made up of people who don't have any solitude, they become dangerous networks of manipulation and domination. When I share that quote with my spiritual formation students, they always look at me like, that's dark. (laughs) And it is, yeah. But there's some truth. When we've not been to prison, when we've not encountered God's steadfast love for us individually, then very suddenly, without even realizing it, our life together can become about us trying to get that love from each other, trying desperately to extract that love from the people that we're in contact with. And as we go through this pandemic and as we get to life, God willing, beyond this pandemic, we can't rush past the lesson that prison has to teach us. Let's pray together. God, how thankful I am for uh, this church. I thank you for the place. I lament that the room is not full I know, God, that you take delight in the praises of your people, and I lament that I can't experience those in the flesh with my brothers and sisters today. I give you thanks, God, for technology that lets this happen in a way that would have been unthinkable even 10 or 15 years ago. We are thankful, God, for a way to raise our voices together. We pray, God, that our togetherness will be a togetherness that gives you honor, a togetherness not rooted in our need to get something from each other, but a togetherness that protects each other's need to be with you in that prison place? And will you take the things that we have learned in these last few months and for the next few, however long this goes, to seal in our hearts your love, even as we see ourselves with the clarity that prison provides. Show us your steadfast love as you did, Joseph. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.